Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 is where we will spend our time together this morning, specifically looking at verses 1 through 7, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our series entitled, Unveil the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, over the last several weeks, we have uh, looked at the book of Revelation, and uh, we have had an opportunity now to move through chapter 1. In chapter 1, we get the scene, the setting, the individuals, and the focus of the book. And uh, chapter 2 begins the second section of this book. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, we get the structure of the book. And it tells us that John was supposed to record the things that he had seen, the things which are, the things that will take place after these things. And so we will start the second movement today. And we will be in that second movement through chapter 3, where we will focus in on the seven churches. And as we come to this section, our Lord has already been on full display laying out for us uh, through very vivid language, uh, his power, attributes, uh, his plan. And so as we move now, each one of these will be on display as we look at each of these churches. Today, we'll be acquainted with the church in Ephesus. And as we look to this particular body, uh, what we understand is, is that this message is not just a historical message. Yes, uh, it was a message of antiquity. Back in the day, there was a, a body of believers meeting in Ephesus, but this message is much more than just a history lesson. You see, the book of Revelation comes with a promise of blessing uh, as we read it, hear it, and heed it. And as we look in this particular section, the second section of the book, chapters two and three, we will find some very specific application to be able to have as a church, but also as individual believers. You see, as we come to this section, the Lord is going to be laying out for us what he sees in the life of the church. And he's going to lay out for us what should happen because of these realities. The title of today's message is Heart Condition. You see, what our Lord does here is he is looking in on the church in Ephesus just like he is looking in on the church in Jonesboro, Arkansas at 416 Callion, and he is looking at the heart condition. Now, when I think about this, it makes me think about my family. Uh, each year, uh, I've tried to uh, make it a point to go on an international mission trip uh, ever since my first trip uh, in 2006. And uh, that has added up to be over 30-something trips over the span of my uh, time serving the Lord. And I remember that uh, when I first got married, I would try to bring my uh, wife something back from each trip. And sometimes it would be a purse. Or sometimes it would be some sort of fabric. Uh, 
sometimes it would be something for the kitchen that she thought was really neat. And so I tried to bring her something back. And then I, I had my first child, my daughter. And I did a good job initially at bringing her something, my wife and my daughter. And then just over time, I just started bringing back my daughter something. And I remember as Eva Ruth began to grow, uh, she would say, you know, Dad, you're going on your trip. Tell me a little bit about the place and about the people and what's going on. And I would bring her something back and she would be excited about getting a gift. Then we had number two, my son. And I kept this same process up with him. And so now, whenever I go on my, my trips now, they don't ask me where I'm going or how my trip is going to be. They ask me, what are you going to bring me? And so whenever I'm on the trip and we find Wi-Fi from time to time and I want to see them and I want to call and just see how they're doing, the way they typically answer the phone, Daddy, what did you buy me? I'm like, what do I look like? Okay? And as the years have gone on, whenever I come home, most of the time they're in the bed. They're sleeping. And so I try to sneak in and look at them and say, y'all are just so peaceful looking in there. You're not like this when you're awake, but you're just so peaceful now. And in the morning time, they'll come into our room and run in and jump in the bed. And while I'm expecting them to say, Daddy, you're home. We love you. That's not what they say to me nowadays. They say to me, where is my gift? And over the years, what has happened is, is in their heart and in their mind, uh, they have begun to focus on the gift, not the gift giver. And if we're not careful in the life of the church, uh, we can begin to focus on the gifts that God gives us and not on the fact that he is the one who we should be praising and calling, touching base with, and asking how things are going. So as we go down through this section, as we look to this reality, we have to ask ourselves a, a very important question. You know what, God, does my life, does what I think about, does what I talk about, does it really show that I love you? Or am I just in love with what you, what you do for me? Does it really show that you are the most important in my life? Or does it show that we just want what he brings, what he gives? You see, if we're not careful, the gifts, can be, the gifts that he brings can begin to take precedent to the relationship that he desires for us to have. You see, what I like to say is that Jesus Christ to the church in Ephesus and to us today, he's going to give us a CT scan. If you've ever had to have a procedure done, physicians will order a CT scan to be able to see what's wrong, to see if there's anything wrong, to be able to see the effect. And so this scan goes deeper than just what they can hear. It goes deeper than just what they can read from the other things when they get blood from you. It goes deeper and it gives them a deeper look into what's happening. And he's going to give the heart of believers, the heart of this church, and I believe the heart of this exact church, he's going to scan it. And the way in which he does it is first he's going to identify himself and that's very important because each identification that he gives tells us something about what the church needed to remember. The second thing that he's going to do is he's going to give an affirmation uh, to most of the churches, not all the churches. He gives them an affirmation, something that says, hey, you're doing a good job. Then he's going to give a word of correction, not to all, but this is the flow. He's going to give a word of correction. Then he's going to give a word of challenge. And then he's going to give a word of covenant or promise. And as we go through this, we're going to see these movements as we check our heart today. 
This church, you'll remember, we hear about them at the end of Acts chapter 18. And in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul was a human instrument that God used to found the church. And we hear about the unique struggles and the dynamics that they go through. And so I hope you've had an opportunity after setting the history. Now let's have some fun. I hope you've had an opportunity to find Revelation chapter 2. Our passage is going to break down in three ways. We're going to see first that the Lord commends our patient endurance. Secondly, that the Lord, he confronts our heart motivation. And lastly, that the Lord, he commands immediate change. We're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, which make up our first section. It says, To the angel, the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. See, the first thing that we must understand and see from our passage is that the Lord, he sees the things that you are doing for his name. He sees the, the decisions and the behaviors, the actions that you are doing for his name, he sees the way in which you live, the patient endurance, the struggles, the hardships, and the dynamics of each and every life in here. He sees each and every one of us, and I believe that he is commending those things, that he is giving us praise for those things. And so from our text, we see, first and foremost, that the letter was to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And if you were here earlier, we talked about this word that, that, that represents angel. It also could be rendered messenger. And a decision has to be made here whether or not we're talking about an actual messenger or angelic being like Michael or like Gabriel. Or are we talking about the specific human appointed messenger of this congregation? And so we look at this rendering as messenger or pastor of this particular group. These letters to the seven churches, they follow a particular pattern. They follow the Roman postal system of the day. And so I like to say this, these are the messages to the seven churches. And so when you look at this, there was an order in which these were to be given and distributed. And each place would have gotten the mail for each of the others. And so I just want to put it to you like this. That when you look at these seven churches, it's following the Roman postal uh, service and each church would have gotten a chance to read and hear about the dynamics of what were going on in other churches. You know, it'd almost be like, you know, if uh, people had access to your DM, your direct messenger on your Facebook. How would you like that? Some of us like, get on in my DM then, preacher. You want to start like that? Go ahead and get in there and see what you want to say. It'd be like somebody having access to your text message history. To be able to see the information that's coming, like you open up your phone and you just, people can read what's going on. They read the good, the bad, and ugly. Anybody signing up for that, right? The church just know all your business. That makes sense what I'm saying? 
And so when you, when you see this, just understand that this is the process, this is the way in which God is working because we can learn something from each and every one of these seven churches just like they can learn something from the dynamics or the difficulties that they were facing. And so this letter is moving in this particular pattern. You see, he says it's to Ephesus. Just a brief history about Ephesus. Ephesus was seen in these three ways in this time, politically, commercially, and spiritually, uh, as the hub, the center of Asia Minor. Uh, the political capital, the commercial capital because of the harbor and the way in which the highways would have been moving, where they all would converge there in Ephesus. The spiritual hub because of the uh, temple to Artemis in the Greek, Diana in, uh, in, in the, the Roman language, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple that would have uh, prostitutes and priests and people would come there. And so this was a leading city, a very dynamic city, one that was a very wicked city, a very, uh, a, a, what I would say, a great place to plant a church. Where you got wickedness and influence and opportunity, I just find that's a great place to plant a church. And we see here, Ephesus was a tough spot. The Apostle Paul planted there. It was prone to having individuals come from within to distract and distort the work. We get some information, not just about the, the messenger or the city, but we hear some, some descriptor of Jesus in verse 1. It says this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember, uh, up in chapter 1, we got the uh, interpretation of this. This is the fact that Jesus is holding those messengers in his right hand and that he is walking among the, the lampstands. I mean, those are representatives of the church. And so he is walking and moving among it. So what we are focusing here on now is Jesus' hands and his feet. And in so doing, focusing on his hands, that means that he has concern and he has care. He has concern and care for what's happening in your life, what's happening in this church and all other churches. When we focus on his feet, the fact that he is moving throughout the churches, it's focused on the fact that he is in control, that he is making assessments and judgments. And whenever he makes assessments and judgments, he always does it with absolute clarity and precision, and he never misses. Now, just for some encouragement for a second, you know, I'm increasingly running into people, and you can tell me if you have that, people say, you know, I love Jesus, but I just don't like the church. Anybody, anybody ever run, anybody ever said that like that increasingly? Yeah, you, you might have been one. You know, I remember before I was saying like, yeah, I ain't got to go to that church to have a relationship with God. You know, that preacher in there, he ain't no good anyways, right? He is sinning just like me. And I can remember having this conversation with my sister on the phone. And I remember telling her, I don't need to go to that church to be, you know, saved. I don't need to go to that church to have a relationship. I'm good, right? And what I find is, is that increasingly we run into people that say they love Jesus, but they just don't like the church that he has founded. But can I tell you, there's a problem because you know what? Jesus is concerned with the church. Jesus is in it. So can I just tell you, I'm not saying that you can't have a relationship with the Lord outside of the gathered church. But can I tell you, he expects you to also have a relationship with him in the midst of the gathered church. Because that is where he is moving and operating and working. And so whenever somebody tells you, I'm not trying to go to that church up in there, well, you say, you love Jesus? Well, guess what? That's where he is. Won't you come on scene with me? You see, ultimately, 
He's providing assurance and accountability. Now in this, in this, what we must recognize is he begins to specifically call out some things in the lives of the individuals in the church. Look with me in verse 2. I started off slow for a reason. Y'all notice I'm just kind of easing y'all in because I'm going to be spitting and jumping here in a minute. In verse 2 he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. You see what he first initially comes out and he says is, is listen, I'm aware of the activity that's going on in the church. I'm aware of what's happening. I'm aware that you have come under trial. You've come under hardship. You've come under difficulty. And you've had to be willing to persevere, to stand up tall and strong underneath pressure. He says, I'm aware. I'm aware that it's not easy in Ephesus. I'm aware that there's a temple there to a false goddess, to a false god. And can I tell you, the, the worship is all wrapped around fertility. And so sexual immorality and perversion and all this wealth is all in there. And I'm telling you, I know it's not easy to be where you are. And he says, I commend you because you've been willing to persevere, to stand strong, to stay straight, to stay focused, to stay stable in the midst of these difficult things. You, you see, the, the problem though, and we're going to get here in just a second, is that if we're not careful though, we, we can be so active in the church that we miss the relationship piece of walking with God. I'm not saying don't be active. You know, we get accused of being uh, word Baptist church. Just change the D to a K, right? And you get work Baptist church. And we get accused of being work Baptist church all the time. I ain't going in that. They just try to put you to work all the time. So can I say, our brother can appreciate a, a good amount of work that the church should be doing. I just say, we believe Ephesians 2.10. That's what he said. God has works that he has set out for us. We believe that, and we want to make sure we get all of it. We don't leave nothing on the bone. You hear what I'm telling you? Not a thing on there. And so when we look at this, he says, I see your, your, your toil. I see your perseverance and your struggle. And he sees their activity. And I believe that a church should be actively involved in expanding the kingdom of God, should be actively involved in trying to find places, identify darkness to go in and light it up, to identify places where there's lack and where the knowledge of God is not. And that's where you should plant yourself. Like I'm not the guy that believes that we should just come in here in a holy huddle, all the salt stays in the shaker. I believe that there's a decaying world and there's a bland world that needs the love of Jesus Christ and the only way they're going to get it is when we get out of the salt shaker and we begin to get inside of and begin to rub up against and impact and begin to change and transform. So, so what, what, what I see here is that this church was in a difficult place, a very immoral place. But they didn't let that stop them from representing Christ. They were very active. He says, I see it. I see it. Can I just encourage you here for a second, though? Let us always remember that it's not just what we do for Jesus, but why we do it. You see, it's not just what we do, but why we do it. We're going to get there in verse 4. I don't want to steal all my thunder. Then I can't boom when we get to that section. Then he says, notice this, verse 2, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Did y'all see that? Now, that might surprise you. 
coming from Jesus' mouth. Does that surprise anybody like that? The Lord is committing his church and he's saying, you can't tolerate evil people. Can I just say, there are going to be a few things that are going to shock you. You would never think, did Jesus, Jesus, what? You said that? Yes, that's what he said. He said that you cannot tolerate evil men. So what he says is, is not only is there a dynamic where he is praising their activity, but he's also praising them because they have been willing to keep the standard. Can I just say that when you read the Bible, when you come before the Bible, when you allow the Bible to guide and lead your life, what you're going to find is, is that there is a standard of holiness that God expects his people and his churches to function and live within. There is a standard. Now, I, I know that in our day of tolerance and acceptance and all these other things, the way in which the world defines it, like for us to go up to somebody and say, actually, that's sin, and God is not pleased with that, like, like oh, are you talking to me? Are you judging me? And I know that, that in the past, the church, we hadn't always, like, handled this idea of holding the standard well, where sometimes you have people on street corners shouting at people, and you have people with sandwich boards on them shouting at people, and you have people looking down on them. I can't believe you hang with them, right? And that, that, there's ways in which we have done things in the past that I don't believe is of God. But can I tell you, just because it was done incorrectly does not mean that God does not have a standard. And can I just tell you, when we look at this, the church in Ephesus, they were willing to live by this standard. And it says they did not tolerate wicked or evil men. They understood that there was a holiness, there was a holiness that was supposed to characterize the way in which they lived their life, a way in which they were to live separate. When we say holy, what we are saying is, is that we are separate from the culture. We are separate. We have separated ourselves out. That does not mean that we do not try to engage the culture around us, but what that means is that we are not influenced and we are not following the trajectory and the mindset and the, the desires of the world around us. Right, the Bible says in the world, not of it, right? The illustration I know to give you is a boat. The boat should be in the water, not of the water. If it's of the water, guess what it is? A submarine. You understand what I'm telling you? It's a submarine. And so when we, when we think about this, there's a way in which we have to understand. And the church in Ephesus, they were willing to allow the word of God, scripture, to be the way in which they shaped their behavior, not the culture. Can I just tell you, there are going to be things that the culture is going to tell you is okay that God is telling you it's not okay. There are going to be things that the culture says, yeah, you should do it. Everybody else doing it. But God is saying, uh-uh, don't you do that. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down Colossians 3.17 for me. Because I believe that the church at Ephesus, they were a great example of this. A great example of this, Colossians 3.17, a great example of what, what, what I believe the Lord means here. Now, now, I know that, you know, I'm swinging hard. I told you we started off slow, but we, we, we're not staying there, okay? Colossians 3.17, let, let's just start this together. Y'all ready? Let's just read this together on three. One, two, three. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, now, when it comes to this standard of the way, let's just look at this for a minute. You know, preacher, I hear what you're saying, but you know, you don't know where I work. You know what I mean? 
you don't know the type of people I have to be around on a daily basis. You don't know where I, I, I go to school. You, you don't know the locker room that I'm in. You don't know the family that I come from, all right? You don't know what's going on. L listen to me. The Lord is very clear here when he affirms and when he encourages the church in Ephesus that he's saying, look, I know where you are. It is a tough place and I appreciate you for holding the letting people know that, look, you might be evil. We're just saying we can't agree with it, but we like you, but we don't like what you do. All right. So when it comes to our life, no matter where we find ourselves, it says whatever you do in word or deed, how should you do it? All in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning that the things that you do in your life, the things that you say, the place that you go, how you act on the job, how you act with your friends, whenever you go to the tailgate, whenever you're having a you know, gathering at your house. Like Jesus, if his, his name is on it, it should be something that is glorifying, exalting, and pointing people to him. The way in which you operate, relate, and respond in a world that wants to do the exact opposite. That, that's what he's saying here. That there should be a, dis a distinction, a, a way in which we live our life that is different than the world around us. Notice I hadn't said perfect. Anybody in here perfect? Let me see. Let me raise your hand. You perfect up in here. Okay. I didn't think so. Notice mine didn't go up either. Now some of you might have said, that, look, I ain't ready, but inside I'm raising it now. Okay. <laughs> but what we, we understand that we, we will not be perfect here. But because, just because that's a reality does not mean that there should not be a standard by which we live. That God has established it. And he says of them, look, I see in verse 2, he says, you can't tolerate evil men. You, you can't tolerate them. You know, when you read the Bible, you will find that church discipline is a real thing. That whenever people decide that they want to continue to live in sin, unrepentant, that there are actions and measures and steps that the church must take. To identify the issue. Because we don't want somebody up in here at the church living a certain type of way thinking that, oh, the church, they accept me. And then they might think that, okay, so Jesus, you are accepting my lifestyle this way. No, no, no. Just because you might have people that co-sign and agree with you here does not mean that heaven is co-signing and agreeing with you there. There's a standard that he has called us to. You see, scripture is supposed to guide us. Not only do we see he, the activity and the standard, but notice this doctrine is very important. Catch this now. It says, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Did y'all catch that? Well, he's saying, listen, there are false apostles, false prophets, false teachers in abundance. That's what the Bible says that many, many have gone out. And he says, and when they came, you checked them. Like, like, I appreciate the way in which when they started trying to come in talking that mess, you were like, no, we don't accept that. We don't agree with that. You were like the Bereans. You, you took it and you said, let's just weigh it out according to Scripture and what has been handed down. And they, you said, no, 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 that's not the case. Now, this idea of apostles is very important because when we, when we look at this idea of judgment, this, this judgment in terms of apostleship is not a judgment for condemnation. It's a judgment of identification. See, what I find is, as many times we miss it in our world because we feel like, man, we can't say something in a judgmental way 
because I don't want people to think that I'm judging them, right? That's how we, that's our logic. I don't want you to think I'm judging you, so I'm not going to say nothing about the way in which you believe or the way in which you live. But can I tell you, what the Bible calls us to do is not to call condemnation. The Bible calls us to look for identification. I'm making an assessment on what you have said, on how you live, on what you do, not because I'm trying to condemn you, but because I'm trying to identify with you. Are you my brother? Are you my sister? Or are you not? That's what this idea is. And what, what it, the way in which it works is, is that there are things that come along with being a brother and sister, right? There are things that come along with being in the same family. And so we are looking for identification. Do we identify with one another? Does this decision, does this behavior, does this habit, does this place, does it go along with what daddy has already told us we need to be doing as brother and sister? You see, when it comes to the doctrine, he says, look, you tested someone, they came in and think they were apostles, right? Now, when you look at this, what, what, what he, he's saying is that, listen, the apostles, there are those who are sent. So there's a sense in which you can be a lowercase a apostle, meaning you have been sent out. You have been sent to represent. But then there's a capital A apostle, and not everybody can be that, okay? Not everybody can be a capital A apostle. One who walked with Jesus, was inspired to write scripture. And if you're not careful, if you listen to certain people, they start talking like what they say is on the same level inspired by God. I'm like, look, I'm sorry, but you're not a capital A apostle up in here, you hear me? I'm sorry, but that's not the road that you carry. You know what I'm saying? You might, you know, think so. Somebody might have told you you might have ate a bad taco last night and had a crazy dream of it, but I'm just telling you, you are not a capital A apostle. That, 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 that foundation piece is closed up. And so he's saying, look, the, the way in which we know that is because God, God, Christ, he called them, then they established a foundation by which we judge everything else. And he says, that's how we must be willing to do it. Can I just tell you, in, in Christianity, sometimes there's this sentiment that says, you know what? It's just of God. It's all of God. It's good. God is good all the time and all the time God is good and everything people say about God is good. No. We have to be willing to test it, to check it. Can I just get real practical here for a second? Because I know y'all thinking, man, he on one this morning. Can I give you four, four ways in which I believe they check people and I think the way in which we should check people? Just, just for if you want to know whether or not somebody is, is trustworthy, true. The first way is their belief about Jesus. What do they say about Jesus? Whenever you want to check something or check some belief system, somebody come up to you on, on the road and they try to tell you, did anybody tell you God's a woman? Huh? How do I check that? Y'all looking at me like that don't happen. That happens, okay? It happens here in North Jonesboro. You, you want to check, see what they say about Jesus. Does what they have to say about Jesus hold up to the historical revealed will through Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection witnessed by Scripture? Is that what, or, or do they come saying, you know, you know, Jesus and Satan, they actually spirit brothers. Huh? Jesus and Satan, brothers? Is that what the Bible teaches? That, that's what, when you look at Mormon theology, that's what they teach. So what I'm saying to you is one of the ways in which you can check it is you must check, okay, so what do they say about Jesus first? 
Secondly, what do they say about the gospel? What do they say the gospel is? Do they say that the gospel is uh, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and you got to be baptized to be able to receive that? That's good news. Do they say it's the life, death, burial, and resurrection and you got to bring in some other saints and some other folks? What do they say? Do they add to the gospel? Do they take away from the gospel? Because to add to or to take away, what does that do to the gospel? It changes the gospel, right? So what do they say about the gospel? The third thing, not just Jesus, not just the gospel, but what do they say about the Bible? They say, oh yeah, that Bible, it's been corrupted. Look, you need two or three more volumes that I just happen to have over here for the low, low price of $19.99, three installments to help you understand that one over there, okay? Did they, did they come in and they got magazines and literature and, and other books that have to come alongside. What do they say about the Bible? Is it sufficient? Is it not? Do they take books out of the Bible? Do they only want to focus on one testament and not the other? What, what do they say about the Bible? If you want to know, that's a great question to ask. What do you say about the Bible? The fourth way, I believe they checked in the way we should check is you want to look at their lifestyle. You want to look at that lifestyle. Can I just tell you something? What I have found in my day is people can tell you anything. This tongue right here can say anything. But guess what? Guess what these right here do? They tell you the truth. They t where you walk and how you live, it tells you the truth about who a person is. It tells you the truth about what they believe. Because you can say what you want to say. But these feet right here, the way in which you live, are going to always tell me and tell everybody else what you truly believe. And so when they come to you and you look at their lifestyle and you say, well, man, they just seem like such nice people. They help everybody. They're doing all these good things. And then when you look at them and you realize they're only doing it because of insecurity, because they think that they have to earn their salvation, because if they don't, they can't go to some lowly you know, paradise on earth. Or if they feel like if they don't do it, they have to be so much, so works-based, so that way they can be approved by God, so they can go to the, a third level of heaven, all these other things. When you begin to narrow down and you get the reality of why they live the way they live, it will let you know whether or not it's true. But can I just flip the coin on the other side? We have people want to come in and tell you about all this freedom. They, we, we got a group in here in, in verse 6, the Nicolaitans, that were like this. And they come in and say, oh, don't, don't worry about them commands in the Bible. We're under grace. It's this grace time now, Right? New Testament is grace. Can all three, can we say grace together? One, two, three. Grace, right? That's New Testament times, right? We can do what we want to do. We just sin and you know what? Grace. We got that plan. Jesus, you died on that cross. You shed your blood. Oh, you cover everything. I got just grace. Nobody worry about no commands or doing anything like that. Grace, okay? And there are groups that are going to come out and they're going to tell you grace all the time, Okay? And what they're trying to sell you is, is a cheap bag of goods. It's what's called cheap grace. The idea that you can presume on God's grace to do what you want to do, expecting him to always cover the tab of your messy lifestyle and sinfulness. Now let me just hear, hear, me, hear me now. Do I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died on the cross for the sins of the world? Yes. Do I believe that when he died on the cross, his power to forgive is past, present, and future? Yes. I believe all those things to be true, but that does not mean you can presume on his grace. 
See, these group the, in, in verse 6 here, I'm just going to get to you quick. These Nicolaitans, that, that's what they would do. They, they were a group that, that they felt like, look, number one, it's a, it's a word that's compound. It means to conquer the people. And so they had a division, a divisionist mindset where they said, look, we are high and there's another group of individuals below us. The compound word, the first word is where we get our English word Nike. Second word is where we get our English word laity. And so it means to conquer the people or to conquer the laity, right? So when you see this, they were trying to, 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 to set up division, a hierarchy. We're going to get more about them in Pergamum, but just catch me for a second. What they were trying to teach the people is that, listen, you got this grace. You can do, you can live how you want to live. Don't worry about, you know, all this stuff about Jesus being the only king and not bound to Caesar and all these other things. Look, you got freedom. Look, you got grace. You can live how you want to live here in Ephesus, right? I know you're struggling to temple prostitutes down there and you came out of that background and you find yourself easing down there once a week. But they, look, 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 don't worry about that. God got you covered, okay? And what our Lord says about that in verse 6, he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Hate. And so we have to be careful here. He's telling us, number one, we put folks to the test. We check them on Jesus. We check them on the gospel. We check them on the Bible. And we check them in their lifestyle. Not only that, though, I want you to catch this. He says in verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And have not grown weary. He says, for whose name's sake? For his name's sake. You see, they had a devotion about them. They had a devotion about them that didn't, didn't matter the cost. C can I just say, they were not guilty of having convenient Christianity. And in our day, a lot of people love convenient Christianity. When it's convenient to be a Christian, that's what you do. When it's not convenient to be a Christian, you don't do it. it it's convenience. And so what he's saying is, listen, you've been willing to have devotion even though it has cost you. You've been willing to be devoted for my name's sake. That's the reason why the pressure's happening for his name's sake. When you seek to glorify God in a world that is bent on sin, that is controlled by Satan, can I just tell you, it is Jesus that the enemy is trying to get to. He just loves to try to get to, to his children and get to those who follow him to try to affect him. And he's saying, you have persevered underneath it. Can I just tell you, our relationship with the Lord should not be based off convenience. And there are far too many times where we look for a convenient Christianity. What do I get out of this? What's it going to benefit me? Might I just submit to you that the Lord does a whole lot of things for us. But if he didn't do one other thing for us after he gave us salvation, he would already have given us too much. So when we think about the dynamics here, what he is telling him is like, I'm seeing, I, I'm watching, I see how you have persevered and it wasn't convenient for you, but it showed that the relationship is strong and true. Saying don't fall for convenient Christianity. You see, the second movement tells us about the issue that the Lord had, though, because you look at this church, you're like, man, they got an A++. You know what I'm saying? They got an A++ wow off to the side when you look at the grade, right? You look at the grade and you're thinking, man, they got it going on. Up, oh, problem. Verse 4. You ready? Verse 4. But I have this against you. Y'all see that? I love our Lord because he keeps it real here. 
He says, I, I have this, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You, we're looking at all these things. We're like, man, they, they, look at how they're handling business. But he said, uh-oh, but I got something against you. You know, we have to be careful because, you know, looks can be deceiving. You know, let, let me say it in a kind of fun way. Uh, I've been tricked many a day. Whenever I would go to my grandma's house to get jelly beans, I've been tricked many a day thinking I was getting a grape jelly bean. I got that nasty licorice jelly bean. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? I mean, anybody know what I'm trying to tell you? That just changed the whole dynamics. You hear me? You had your mind ready for the sweetness of the grape and that nasty licorice get in there. You're like, yeah, right? Looks can be deceiving. And I want you to do me a favor and I want you to jot down 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Because I just feel like we need to hear this now. The Lord has sent out Samuel to anoint the next king. He went to Jesse's house. And when he went to your Jesse had a lot of boys. And can I tell you, I just find, you know, Jesse had a lot of good looking boys. Strong boys. And he rolled up on the house. Says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. And I always say, praise the Lord. Because I have rejected him. <laughs> what y'all trying to say? Anyway, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks where? At the heart. So, so understand when we, when we look at this He's looking at the heart and he's saying, look, I, I see all the work you're doing. And everybody else, they commend you, man. Look at that church in Ephesus, man. They're they knocking it out of the park. When, when it comes to the way in which they live, they are busy getting it done. When it comes to the way in which they treat uh, sin and all those things, man, they take it seriously. When it comes to the way in which they, they look at the dynamics of the culture and not being uh, moved by the doctrinal issues that come from the temple up the street, man, they're keeping the doctrine strong. When, when it comes to the devotion and what it's costing them, man, they, they got it going on. But Jesus said, oh, I see some of my scan has come back. I have, I have, my CT results have come back. And what I'm finding is, is that we got a lack of love up in here we got a lack of love not just any kind of love what kind of love does he say first love first love that, that's important you see this is a beautiful expression here that he is using that should grab our language notice he didn't say you lost your first love what does he say you left it you didn't lose it you left it Meaning, meaning, I just, I jotted it down this way. You turned from it, you let it go, you left it. You were careless. You were careless with it. This idea of first love has to do with apathy or growing cool. You see, love is not lost in a moment. It's lost over time. It's left over time. It's not in a moment, it's, it's over time. Let me, let me just illustrate it in a very simple way. An easy way, and I'm going to hit real hard here in just a second. We got anybody here love cheese dip? Any, any cheese dip lovers? Let me see. Go to the restaurant. You like bring that cheese dip. That's like water. You understand? You ain't need water. Just bring that, okay? When they sit that, that bowl of cheese dip, let me do it like this. That bowl of cheese dip on the table, and you start getting it right. What, what happens as the meal goes on? What happens to the top of that cheese dip? Starts to get hard. 
starts to get hard, right? So whenever you want to get your chip in there, you have to hit down, and there's this nasty-looking little layer of stuff on the top. And you have to put it down in there and roll it around a little bit, mix that back in. Then it comes out, and this red is dripping. You see, as that dip grows cold, right, it begins to, 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 to get hard on the top. It gets hard on the top, and you have to dip it down, back down in the warm. You have to stir it back around. And so what the, what the Lord is letting us know is, is that their love for him, their direction for him, is like that nasty, crusty layer on the top. That, 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 that You didn't know it. The bowl's still on tape. You still got the love. But can I just tell you, it's getting crusty on the top. And what has to happen is that you have to be willing to get down in that thing, get down in there, and you have to stir it back up, stir it back in, stir it back together. He's going to tell us in the next section how we do that. But understand something here. It is possible, it is possible to be in the church, to be actively serving, to be focused, but not have the, the love of God red hot in your chest, red hot in your relationship, red hot in the way in which you relate to God, in your passion for him. You see, they were so busy working for Jesus that they forgot to love him. You, you can get so busy doing something that, that, that initially started out as a passion of love and then eventually it just turns into a job and you have no love for it. You see, that's what happened here. They got so busy with making sure the doctrine was right and making sure that people were living holy lives and making sure that the devotion was strong and making sure that, these, that they forgot. You know what? There's this love, this relationship thing that God desires. And they got crusty hard. How does this look in the life of a believer? Can I just lay out a picture for you? Where you lose the excitement. You know, when you first are saved, one of my favorite things to, to, to do is to be around a new believer. When you're around a new believer, can I just tell you, they're so new, they're so excited, so, so fired up. And what happens over time is if there's not a cultivation of that relationship to continue to keep a fire burning and passion, then that love can begin to grow cold. That means you don't have it. You just kind of leave it. But when, when you're around a new believer, they're just so excited. And I just, I jotted down a couple of things. They have excitement and they have passion. And what's supposed to happen is there's supposed to be a good mixture in the church of new believers and, and, and mature believers. Because what happens over time, if we're not careful, our passion can begin to move to apathy. And then we just come in and we go through the motions because we know how to do church. We know how to come in. We know whenever crescendo happens. We know when to raise our hand and we know when to bow our head and we know when to clap. And we know when to, we just go through the motions. We, we know how to do it. And what can happen in your life and in my life is we can put that thing on cruise control and we just come in here on a Sunday morning and we just sail right through service without having made a heart connection with God like he used to have with us. Whenever our minds were changed and our hearts were changed and we would leave this place and things were changing in our life and he was changing lives through our life. And we get so burdened down with things of this world that the passion, it just, over time it grows cold. And he says, I've got, I've got that against you that your passion is not as, it's not like it once was. It's not like it once was whenever you used to communicate, you used to talk to me, and you, and you talked to me not just because you were getting ready to eat a meal. 
You would talk to me through the day. You would actually have time in the mornings or you would actually intentionally stay up to have a conversation with me, the Lord. That's what he's saying. You, you know what I'm talking about. When you're in love with somebody, they don't have to make you talk to them. When you're in love with somebody, you talk to them when you're not supposed to be talking to them. You remember if you had a you know, crush or you were in love in school, you write notes across the high, across the lean and looking, I see you over there. You, you got a little secret hand codes and stuff when the teacher got their back turned, you can just. <laughs> right? That communication peak, when you're in love, when you're in love, you, you got that. What happens over time is, you know, when we, we start learning and we start getting where we know something, now we, you know, we just a little too mature, too sophisticated to talk to God like that. Too sophisticated to talk to him that often. Too sophisticated to be willing that right in the middle of a group of people at your job to just break out into prayer right then and there. You know, they don't think I'm, you know, I'm too, I'm too sophisticated for that right now. Communication, not that, not only that though, can I tell you the other things that come along with the heart that's on fire is time. You remember when you were first saved, how much time you, 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 you gave to the Lord and to the work of the ministry? There was a time, I'm just going to throw it out here, that you were coming to two services and nobody had to ask you to be there. You wanted to be up in there. You wanted to hear the message twice. You wanted to hear the message. You wanted to worship through song, hear the message, worship through song again, and then slip out the back door, right? There was time. You, you gave time. Can I just tell you, when you in love, you ain't got to find time. Guess what happens when you're in love with somebody? What do you do? You make that time. How much time you get for your lunch, bro? How much time you get? You get 50, girl, that's, that's just enough. That's what I need. 15 minutes, we can do this time, right? You make time. You sacrifice. That's what happens. They were not willing to sacrifice. That, that peace, that sacrifice where they were giving of themselves shifts. And what happens as, as this part, as your heart begins to crust over, is, is, is you don't sacrifice anymore. What happens is, is you become selfish. It becomes about you. It becomes about God. What are you going to do for me today? You see what I need. Let's go, God. You all powerful, almighty. That's what you said. You said you see my need, right? You said you're going to provide. Thank you. You forget. You forget that God, when he saved you, he allowed you to experience the greatest love that you ever have felt, ever will feel. And what happens, you know, in those moments whenever you are fresh and new and that passion is there. I want y'all to see it now. Whenever that, that passion is there and when you experience that initial salvation and God brings you into a relationship with him and you experience the greatest love, then what begins to happen is, is now you begin to evaluate everything based off of that great love. Can I just tell you before, I was saved, I love to sin. You hear what I'm telling you? I loved it. A brother loved to party. A brother loved to be the life of the party. Brother loved to make sure he had certain types of clothes. I love sinning, okay? And then what happened is, is in, G in 06, Jesus radically changed my life, and I experienced the greatest love ever, right? So then what began to happen is now all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I love to sing. I'm like, I love to go to the club two, three nights a week. I love that, okay? But man, you know what? This love over here, this love that will be willing to go to the cross knowing how jacked up I am and still willing to call me into a relationship like that right there, the club can't, the, ain't nothing the club can give me that he ain't already given me. Ain't nothing for me to find there that he has not already been willing to lay out for me. 
And what, has to ha- what happens is we forget that. We forget that in Christ, we have everything we need. And over time, as, as that crusty part starts to get over our heart, over our passion, we start trying to fill it with other things. We start trying to find other things to be able to captivate us. He says, you've, you've left your first love. Can I just say this by way of encouragement? Then we're going to look at the last movement. Might it be that we move toward an unhindered, excited, and personal, open relationship with Jesus Christ? And I can't think of a better day than today. He tells us how to get that in our last section in verses 5, 6, and 7. He, he, he commands immediate change. I, I want you to catch this now. Check, check what he says in verse 5. He says this, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus, that you talking? Yes, it is him. He gives us three things that we should do. Let's just look at them together. Number one, we must remember. Number two, we must repent. Number three, we must repeat. Remember Repent, repeat. In verse 5, he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Y'all catch that? He says, the thing that you need to do is it, it needs to be a mental exercise first. This idea of remembering, can I construct it in a different way? Underneath this language is a beautiful thing. He's saying, keep remembering. Say it in the negative. Don't forget don't ever forget. Don't ever forget. Keep remembering. Keep remembering where you have. You got to make sure you remember where you were. Remember that time. Don't ever let it get old or cold. You know, what amazes me is that God, uh, and Facebook, remind me, uh, 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 Facebook reminds me of God in this. So, you know, we're minding our own business and it'll pull up a Facebook memory. Who asked you, Facebook, to tell me? Who asked you to tell me what I was doing 10 years ago today? But can I tell you what happens whenever, whenever those mem- memories pop up? What happens? Sometimes you're like, ooh, I didn't want to know that. Ooh, I missed that. But sometimes you're like, wow, look at that. That was a great trip. That was a great time. And can I just tell you, I find that if we're going to take this seriously, can I just give you some encouragement here? When you remember, when you look back, it's important that you do some things that will help you be able to remember. In our culture, if we want to remember things, we write stuff down, we take pictures, we have videos, you know, we get souvenirs. You know, so when, when it comes to your spiritual life, your spiritual connection, can I just tell you, do, do me a favor and just start writing down what God is doing. Put a date and a time on it and put it in a safe spot. Because you're going to need that encouragement. Take pictures in your mind. Just make sure you're present in the moment where you, where you ask God to allow you to remember. I, I feel like I need to get personal here for a second. I, I try not to do this on a regular basis, but I was studying the other day, and uh, this fell out of one of the books that uh, I was studying. And it's a prayer that I, it was, it was my conversation with God on July 4th, 2008, 
at 12.05 a.m. And I thought, man, one, that's, that's 11 years ago. A brother was young back then. Didn't have children yet. God had called me to ministry. And I was wrestling with what my life was to be about. And then I, I, I pulled this out, and I'm going to just read it to you. It says, Jesus, what a great name. Lord, today has been a very tough day. Know your will is the first on my mind. Fighting the enemy. Lord, you've given me so much love. Thank you. I want to honor you with it. The great love you've given me. And then I go to make it personal. It says this, Father, I want to work here in Jonesboro. I want to work here in Jonesboro. Going into the neighborhoods, teaching and sharing, loving. I want to work in the schools and in hospitals. Lord, will you use me? Here I am. And as I think about that, as I think about that, that's not for me. I'm just, I want to say how faithful God is here. That 11 years now, 11 years has gone by. And that is exactly what he has used my life to do. And so, not, not that I'm perfect, because I'm telling you, a brother's not perfect. But what I'm saying to you is that whenever you are willing to go back and to remember to see the bedrock base that God had a plan and a will. And he has a plan and a will for your life. And I understand that there are hardships and heartaches every step of the way. But I'm telling you, as you pray and as you connect to him, his desire, whenever you struggle, whenever you're trying to find the love of what? To be able to go back, set bedrock. He is faithful yesterday, today, and will be forever. He says to remember. If you want to know, you find yourself maybe cooling off in your devotion. Just take some time to get in a quiet place and just remember what it was like when the Lord saved you. I, I just jotted down this way. Take some time to remember when he saved you. Take some time to remember where. Take some time to remember what he did, that he loved you, that he forgave you, that he actually wanted you. Like that, most people struggle with their identity and with their security and what's happening. Can I just tell you, God wants you. If nobody else in this world does, if nobody else in this world is showing love, he wants you. And whenever salvation happens, that is what happens to you. He brings you into a relationship with him. Even though you are a sinner, even though you are messed up, and you mess up, and you will mess up, and you will be a sinner, what he's saying to you is, I want you. That he was willing to look past all of that, that you had done, that you had said, that you didn't do, that you should have, but you didn't go, that you should have went. And he's saying, I want you. Remember is what he's saying. Remember. Remember what he did. Remember what he took from you. 
And I think about my life and I remember how he took from me this desire to have to try to please people by the way in which I looked or by the way of what I drove or my esteem. I remember that when he let me know sitting in Burkina Faso, West Africa, that he was enough and he will always be enough. Remember what he took. The substance that you thought you had to have to be able to get going or to be able to have to knock the edge off at the end of the day or the relationship that you had to be in that was toxic, that was destroying your life. Remember what he took to show you that he was enough. He's saying to remember. But not just remember, he's saying also repent. He says you got to turn. You got to turn. In verse 5, he says this, repent and do the deeds you did at first. He's saying you got to be willing to turn. It's a change of mind, a change of thinking that leads to a change of attitude that leads to a change of behavior. So many times in our world, we think i got to change my behavior. Then when I change my behavior, I'll change my attitude. Attitude, then I'll change my thinking. That is not the way it works here. That your mind has to be renewed. Your thinking has to change. You have to begin to think God's thoughts. He has laid them out in his word. When your thinking changes, then your attitude changes, then your behavior changes. He said you got to be willing to turn. Repentance is, means a turning, a turning, a change of mind that will ultimately lead to a change of, of, of behavior and action. Then he says repeat. He says repeat. Do the deeds you did at first. Whenever you were on fire for God, what was your worship like? Your time in prayer, your time in the word. Your obedience to the word. If you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. I didn't say it, he said it. James 4, 8. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. How do you do that? By repentance. Cleanse your heart, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. One of the things I love about God, one of the things I love about God is that he when it's his turn to hide and hide and seek, he's not very good. When it's his turn to hide and hide and seek, he's not very good. You know why? Because every time you seek him, what happens? You find him. There's a warning here that he gives, and I want to close this way. He says, I'm, I'm coming to you he says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless now, I know when you look at that, I know when I read it, I'm like, oh, Lord, you didn't, like, that's true. That, you mean to say you would rather there not to be a church in Ephesus than there to be a church in Ephesus that doesn't truly love you. That's exactly what he just said. And whenever you go to Ephesus today, can I just tell you, can I just tell you? It's rubble. It's rubble. And he lets us know that he is serious about the way in which we live our lives. That he would rather there not to be a church at 416 Callion, where Baptist Church, he'd rather there not to be a light there that's not going to light the way he calls us to that doesn't have love than there to be one that's not living the way he called it to live. You see, when we think about this, we must take seriously our relationship with the Lord. In verse 7, he gives us this beautiful promise. 
Did you catch it? He says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So catch this now. How do I know that this was not just for Ephesus? Because that's plural right there. The Spirit says to the churches. How do I know this is not just about a corporate body? Because he says, he that has an ear. That makes it personal. You see, what God is telling us is that, yep, this is a historical message to a, to a body, but this is just not a message that's set in history. It's for us right now. And it's not just about a group of people. It's about a person. It's about a person being willing to live this way and to take him seriously. And then he gives us this challenge. And it's coming. He says, grant to eat to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see, he promises that there will be victory. He promises that those who are in him will overcome. The one who overcomes is the one who's in Christ who has already overcome. If you want to overcome, then you must make sure you are connected to the overcomer. As I close this morning, I can't help but to tell you about a story that happened in my neighborhood this summer. One Sunday, I was minding my own business, sitting in my recliner. And this storm blew up. And I'm sitting there, and man, the wind was blowing, the rain was falling, and we're going to have life group at our house that day. And I heard the storm come, and it was a quick one, but it was powerful. And as I sat in my chair, I began to hear the sound of a chainsaw outside. That's my best chainsaw. I ain't got much up. And I look up and I'm thinking, man, it's a Sunday. I've been up since 3 in the morning and I got people coming to my house. You know what I want to do? Sit in this chair. <laughs> but as I sat there, I thought about, man, what, what happened? And I remembered, you know what? You're going to have time to sit in this chair later. So got up and I walk outside and my neighbor across the street had a big tree that was in his front yard, and it fell. And when it fell, it just clipped the side of his house. Had it had hit his house, his house would not be there any longer. And it fell, big tree. And I'm looking at this tree, and I'm thinking, man, it looked pretty. It had green leaves. It even had uh, fruit on it. It, had, it. it showed life. But whenever you walk up to the tree as it was laying over, you could look down, and you could see it was, had rotted out. So what it was showing us was not the reality of what was really happening. And as I looked at that, I thought about this idea that God, listen, he has a place prepared for us. When he says he's going to let us eat from the tree, what he's saying is, is that he is the source of eternal life, that whenever you give your life to him, he is the source. But can I just tell you that far too many of us, when you look at our life, it looks like we got it all going on. We got nice leaves on us. Everything's looking good. But what can I tell you? When you look down at the true source of spiritual connection in life, it is rotted out. Or, it doesn't exist. There's never been a connection. And whenever the push and pull of death comes, you're going to fall right on over. And it's going to become evident to you and everybody else that you had no root system. And when I think about this, I believe that the Lord, he is calling us, number one, as believers in here, to make sure we understand who we are tapped into and to allow our lives to be lived for him, through him, by him. And he's also asking you, this morning, is there truly a relationship there? Do you truly love him? Has there been a time where you truly have surrendered yourself to him and you truly experienced the greatest love that you will ever, ever get?
If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord, never surrendered, I can't think of a better time. I can't think of a better place than right now. And we're going to a time of reflection and response. And I want to encourage you to surrender to him. And maybe you say, you know what, Jamar, I've given my life to the Lord, but you know when you talked about that crusty stuff on the top, that's kind of my relationship. It's cold. Can I just tell you, the Lord is, is let you know what you need to do. You need to remember. You need to repent. You need to repeat. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. And Lord, I'm just thankful for your faithfulness. And this morning, I'm just praying, God, that you will bring about a personal in our lives today. That, Lord, as a result of our time with you, because, Lord, we believe that you see what's going on in here. We believe you are with us. We believe you know what's going on. And I just pray, Lord, that as a result of our time together before you, before your word, that, Lord, our lives will be renewed, will be revived. And that, Lord, we would live differently. That, Lord, we would live in a manner to please you with the way in which we think about the truths that you share with us, the way in which we live our lifestyle, the way in which we react and relate to the world around us. That, Lord, we would not harbor sin. We would not make decisions just because culturally or because it's convenient or because people are not really coming down. Lord, we would, we would live differently. We would look to you and we, we would live a life that's worthy of the gospel to your name. That, Lord, we wouldn't play with sin. That, Lord, we would remember what you've done in our life. That, Lord, we would be willing to turn to you. Because, Lord, if we seek you, you'll let us find you every time. Lord, I pray for, for, for anyone here, they've never given their life to you. Lord, I've been there. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to not know you as Lord and Savior. I know what it's like to struggle with identity. I know what it's like to struggle with the future. I know what it's like to, to have fear, fear of death. I know what it's like to have fear of being alive. I, I know what it's like, Lord. I know. And so Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here, they've never surrendered their life to you, that Lord, today will be the day they would call out to you and they would just say, Lord Jesus, save me. Come into my life and transform me. Use my life for your glory. That, Lord, they would understand that, Lord, when you laid your life down on that cross, Lord, you did it already knowing that they were a sinner. And that, Lord, you're calling them. You're calling them to come to a relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love. And as we go into this time of reflection, I pray you have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand? I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card.
want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved, and that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one, believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, and that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during a time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.